I love how in just 10 minutes I can hear stories about troubles with husbands and children and coworkers. Right? It's so relatable. There's not a single person in this room who is without conflict in their lives. And so I just want to stop and take a minute and say, all of these things that I'm bringing to you, you can follow them to the letter. But if you don't recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer. It's just legalism. So let me just stop. There may be somebody in this room that may have no idea why I'm taking this tact. Let me just stop and say, the God of the universe made man in his image. Man chose to try to take over God's place and sinned against him. And so God promised them that he would send a redeemer, someone who would provide a shelter from the wrath that has to come against sin. Every person who sins must face the wrath of God. And so God sent his son, Jesus, to take that wrath for all who would believe in him as their savior. The person who believes in Christ is the Christian. They're the ones that had the Holy Spirit in their lives that equip them to obey God with joy in all of this. It's not enough to just say, I'm going to be a good, quiet little girl. I'm gonna, I'm gonna obey in all the ways that I think I should. If you don't recognize that it's the work of God at work in your heart and through your life, You're just trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. When I say that in California, people don't know what that means. I'm so (laughs) glad to be able to use it here. It's not just you doing this on your own accord. It's recognizing that the grace of God equips you to trust your God, to dive into his word, and to really be able to walk forward in faithfulness. We've sung several songs this morning that talk about the ruin of our lives and the sin and the struggle that even as believers we still encounter. And the church is where we ought to be able to put that on display in some ways, right? And to recognize that it is the grace of God that allows us to walk with each other as none of us are the perfect, quiet little girl, right? We're all Sammy, poking each other's eyes out. (laughs) And so, as we think about recognizing how we contribute personally to conflict, we also have to move beyond what happened to why it happened. The most important aspect of owning your part in any conflict is actually recognizing that wrong behavior has a root. It has a root. Proverbs 20, uh, verse 5, says that the heart of a man is deep water. Deep water. You can't see what's underneath that water, right? But a wise counselor will draw out what's going on there. And so we have to stop and think about what's going on underneath the surface. It's not just a matter that something happened. Why did it happen? 
What was in our heart? How do we then, number three, identify the root cause of why this conflict came up in the first place? So identifying the root cause of the behavior is not something you can do on your own often. We need, to help to, we need help to see ourselves accurately. We need to ask God for help, right? The psalmist says in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any hurtful way in me. We need to ask God for help, and we need to ask others for help as well. How do we listen to wise counsel? And then fourthly, we need to take responsibility and admit our wrongs honestly and thoroughly. When you identify ways that you've wronged another person, it's important to fully confess that. Uh, I think a lot of us probably grew up in the parenting school of say you're sorry for poking him in the eye. I'm sorry for poking you in the eye. (laughs) Okay, don't do it again. (laughs) Right? And that's kind of the end of it. But what would an actually biblical response or biblical confession to one another look like for ways that we have wronged someone? First of all, address everyone who's involved in the situation, all those that you've affected. Sometimes your sin is very public, right? I've said things in a situation like this that I've had to go back and apologize to hundreds of people for when I've had too much sleep the night before and things just keep <laughs> pouring out. Or too much coffee, that, that's also another thing for me that's not helpful. But address everyone who's, who's involved in the situation that you've wronged. And if you've wronged someone else in the presence of several people, it's helpful for you to go back to those other people and confess what it is that you did, what you said, and how you have impacted them. Here's the second thing, and I would say this is one of the hardest things. It's avoid the words if, but, and maybe in any kind of confession to someone. I'm sorry I poked you in the eye. If you had only listened to me, I wouldn't have done it. I'm sorry I poked you in the eye, but you... You, didn't, you don't know how much you hurt me when you said this. That's not a confession. That's actually an accusation, not a confession. Well, maybe, maybe next time you could do this differently and then I wouldn't respond that way. Right? If you hear yourself saying the words if, but, and maybe in a confession to someone or in an apology to someone, chances are you haven't quite gotten under the surface to figure out what's going on. Number three, admit specifically both your attitude and your actions in the scenario. It's not helpful to speak in generalities. I want to ask for your forgiveness for when I said these words to you. Recognize what it is that you actually said or did to someone and acknowledge the hurt. Express sorrow with them for what you have brought to them. Number five, accept the consequences. Sometimes that means making restitution. Sometimes that means that that person is having a hard time forgiving you and may need to take a little bit of time, and you have to have this conversation again. 
and maybe again and again. Sometimes the consequences are that that relationship is slow to be restored. Number six, alter your behavior. I've given you a lot of illustrations for how I've offended people repetitively. It's helpful for me not to do that on a regular basis, and thankfully some of these illustrations are years old. Some of them are only a month old, and I keep learning along the way. But if you find yourself having to apologize to the same person in the same way about the same thing, you may need some additional help outside of this situation to actually begin working through that situation and that, that attitude or those words in your heart. So alter your behavior and then ask for forgiveness. And one of the things that's helpful here is to allow for time. Very few of us, when we've, when we've asked for forgiveness or had someone ask us for forgiveness, is able to immediately say, I know exactly that I can say, yes, I forgive you, I'm never gonna think about this again. Sometimes it's helpful to say, I want to forgive you, can we talk about this in a, in a couple of days? Sometimes that may be helpful. Sometimes you could just say, yes, I forgive you, and that's done, and it's over. Sometimes, and this is, I love this, when you go and talk to someone and you say, I wanna, say, I wanna tell you, I, I'm confessing to you that my heart was angry when I said these words to you, and I know that I hurt you, and I just wanna ask for your forgiveness. And hold, I want to ask you to hold me accountable that I don't do this again or I don't say this again to you. You know what I love? Is when they say, I had no idea. Of course I forgive you. Game over, right, on that one? Sometimes, though, if you have people that never take offense, you kind of wonder, are they actually listening to me? <laughs> I'd actually like you to be a little bit angry because, man, I was a jerk to you. All right but ask for forgiveness and allow time. When you confess, when you go to confess a wrong, and this is a quote from Redeeming Everyday Conflict, I think is helpful for us. When you go to, re- to confess a wrong, remember that you are there to serve the other person, not to get comfort for yourself. Focus on showing God's love to the person you've harmed. And regardless of that person's response, Keep your commitment to repairing any damage you've caused and to change your choices in the future. It gets helpful to recognize that when we ask for forgiveness, it's a matter of serving the other person. And ladies, can I tell you, there is nothing more countercultural that we can do than to serve other people. And to serve them in a way that says, I was wrong, I'm not, I don't always have it together. It's a really beautiful thing when it happens, especially when it happens with people who are not believers and they see something new in their lives, right? Because the world outside of the church is one of complete and utter conflict on a regular basis. And so when we bring restitution, when we bring peace to someone through our own acknowledgement of our sin, it gives us an opportunity to say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And we represent how God has said to us, you were wrong, but I forgive you. Here's Jesus. So we gaze upward at God, and we recognize that that bringing peace to one another 
is glorifying God. And then we look inward to see what's the plank that we need to take of our, out of our own eye before we take the speck out of someone else's, so, someone else's eye. And then we begin moving toward people and helping others own their part of the conflict. And we do that, first of all, by setting a loving response, a loving attitude and a purpose. So one of the key principles of peacemaking involves an effort to help others understand how they may have contributed to the conflict. When Christians think about talking to someone else about conflict, one of the first verses that comes to mind is Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him and speak to your brother, right? This, if this verse is read in isolation, it seems to teach that we must always be direct in our confrontation of people, to force others to admit that they've sinned. But if we read the verse in context, we see that Jesus has something much more flexible and beneficial in mind than simply standing toe-to-toe with others and describing their sins to them. Just before this passage in Matthew chapter 18, we find Jesus' wonderful metaphor of a loving shepherd who goes out to look for the wandering sheep who then rejoices when it's found. We see this in Matthew 18, 12 to 14. Then in Matthew 18, 15 is introduced this theme of restoration instead of condemnation. Jesus repeats the theme just after telling us to go and show him his fault by adding, if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. And then he hits the restoration theme a third time in verses 21 to 35 when he uses the parable of the unmerciful servant to remind us to be merciful and forgiving as God has been to us. Jesus is very, very clearly telling us He's calling for us to be more loving and more redemptive than simply confronting people with a list of their wrongs. Galatians 6.1 gives us really, really solid counsel on what our attitude and purpose ought to be when we go to one another. And it says this, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, what's the word? Gently. Gently. Fighters, raise your hands again. I just want people to recognize, right? Let's just be honest here. Okay, you fighters, you love this Matthew 19 verse. We fighters, let's be honest. We fighters, we love this Matthew 18 verse. Go to your brother. You see your brother in sin, go to your brother. We love it, we love it. But it's always to be done in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. How beautifully that fits in with Jesus' parable of the shepherd. The shepherd who counts a sheep and realizes that one is gone and goes to find that one. And usually when one sheep is off on its own, it's fallen in a crevice, it's stuck in a, in a pond, it's banged up, it's got thistles and thorns, and there's a care to restoring that sheep. It isn't just a matter of beating it out of the bushes and sending it off to the rest of the herd. It may involve binding up a a leg, pouring on oil, cleaning out the thorns, and bringing care to that one that's 
run away. That's the picture here when we go and restore one another. Our attitude should be one of gentleness rather than anger. And our purpose should be to restore rather than to condemn. If you feel like you should go and talk to someone about their sin, either against someone else or toward you, and you can't wait to have that conversation, don't. (laughs) Just wait. And ask the Lord, is this what you would have me do? If you still feel two or three days later that that conversation still needs to happen, then go and talk to that person. But if you ever find yourself really wanting to have that conversation, you should probably wait a day or two or three or four until you're able to do it with gentleness and not with self-righteous anger. If it's important enough, the situation will still be present for you to have that engagement. So one of the questions we always ask is, how do we know when we should overlook even before you go to talk to somebody, remember that it's a, it can be appropriate to overlook minor offenses. Right? Proverbs 19.11 tells us it's, it's a joy at times to overlook an offense. As a general rule, an offense should be overlooked if you can answer, four, uh, answer any of the four questions with no not give this to you. Excuse me for a minute here. Ha! This isn't in your notes. It is. Confessing your sin. Well, I'm going to trust you. I'm just going to keep going here. Um, So, determining when to overlook. So, if you can answer the question, is the offense... Uh, is the offense seriously dishonoring God? Uh, I remember a situation with a student a few years ago, uh, roommates. The uh, one student loved Oreo cookies. The other student would buy Oreo cookies and have them in her room because she also loved Oreo cookies. There's a difference between those two students. (laughs) One student has Oreos, one student does not. Both students love Oreos. You can see where the conflict came in, right? (laughs) The first student who loved Oreos but didn't have any would sneak them as if you don't number your Oreos and know which (laughs) ones are missing, right? But is that an offense that dishonored God? No, not necessarily. Has it permanently damaged a relationship? I know how I feel about chocolate, so the answer to this is probably yes. Um, And so there was an opportunity for us to actually help these two students work through what does it look like to not thief Oreos. (laughs) It just shouldn't be a hard concept for adults, however. Here's another question. Is it seriously hurting other people? Actually, probably helped the the second girls, the owners, diet, but that's another story. And then the, the other question is, is it seriously hurting the offender himself or herself, right? So you may see someone in sin, you may see someone in conflict, you begin asking these questions. 
Is it damaging their testimony? If people look at them and see, oh, is it, I, I can't believe a Christian would act that way. Even I know the Bible says you shouldn't be doing that. We probably need to have that conversation. We begin to see, is someone hurting themselves by their actions? And if we can begin to see that happening, then we need to go to that person and have that conversation. Are they, is it damaging those relationships or seriously hurting other people? If you answer yes to any of these questions, then the offense is too serious to just overlook, in which case God has commanded us to go and talk to one another privately and lovingly and gently through the situation. And then we have to prepare to move toward the individual. The process of moving toward someone is framed by considering how you would like to be approached. And here's some guidelines to help you as you think about going and talking to someone about a conflict. Pray for humility and wisdom. It's easy to go into a situation like this with a very self-righteous attitude. Well, I would never do this, but I saw you doing it, so I thought I should bring it to you. Right? Plan your words and your timing carefully. Think about how you're going to start the conversation. Recognize that sometimes there's a location where you shouldn't have a conversation like this. Out in the open, you know, in the, in the lunch break room where people are coming and going. Right? There, there are places where you shouldn't have the conversation. So plan your words and your timing carefully. Engage rather than declare. Sometimes it's helpful to ask a question. Almost always, when you're going to bring a confrontation to someone, it's helpful to ask a question. Hey, I noticed that you were doing this the other day. Um, how did you get started doing that? When did that situation kind of cook up for you? Rather than saying, I saw you were in sin and I want to talk to you about it. Right? It could be, when you said this, what did you mean by it? Because remember, one of the things that causes conflict can be our own assumptions of what we see. And so it's helpful for someone to clarify what those, assumption actu- what those assumptions actually are and what the situation actually is bringing. Listen carefully and ask for feedback. Sometimes a, a good question can be, uh, how can I help in this situation? Is there anything I could have done differently in my engagement with you that would have been helpful to you? Because that helps them to recognize that you're not bringing condemnation necessarily. You're actually bringing help. And you want to acknowledge your part in this situation, whatever that might be. Listen carefully and ask for feedback. Call to repentance if that's what's needed. Is this something that you feel the Lord would be honored by? Did you honor the Lord in your words when you spoke those to someone else? Encourage that person with the gospel. We sang these songs this morning that talk about how the gospel meets us in our failure and continues to meet us in our failure as we walk forward. None of us has arrived. And so we have to recognize we're all still in process. And the gospel is a beautiful thing to us every day, not just the day that we came to faith. But it's a recognition that our 
our God is every day walking with us, that the Holy Spirit is walking with us every day in a way that helps us to become more like Christ. And so we have this opportunity to encourage each other with hope, with hope that the gospel does transform and that our God is not a God who carelessly throws away his children. Here's another thing. Recognize your limits. There may be situations that even though you bring something to someone, they're not ready to listen to you. They're not ready to talk to you. And so you have to recognize that there are times where your, what may appear to you in your own thinking to be a loving address to someone, a gentle address to someone, you may get rebuffed because they're not in a place to actually hear the words that you're saying. We're encouraged as much as it is possible with you be at peace with all men, right? So there are going to be opportunities where you're engaging with someone and you have forgiven them, but they're unwilling to actually engage with you. You need to recognize the limits in that, that it may be the Lord has brought this difficult situation and you're, having, you're going to have to continue to work through it in your own heart. As much as it abides with you, be at peace with all men. And then finally, recognize that restoration is the goal. Restoration is the goal. And so in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 5 to 8, we recognize that for the forgiveness of God is engaging uh, the hearts of sinners. So here's the fourth thing that we need to think about, which is including others in moving toward conflict. In an initial, um, in an initial conversation with, uh, with someone else, if, it doesn't, if that initial conversation doesn't resolve conflict, it doesn't mean that we just give up and go, well, I guess I did what I can. That's all over. Don't give up. But review what was said and how you did it and look for ways to make a better approach during a follow-up conversation. Um, one of the things that I found that's really helpful is if I, have a, if I have a confrontation with someone that I engage with regularly or I see them maybe the next week at church or something, treating them as normally as possible and just engaging in small talk can actually be a really healing thing even if they haven't engaged well with you that first time, you're actually just showing them, I still love you, I still see you, I'm still here, right? And those, that kind of engagement with people of just treating them normally can be very helpful in the next conversation that you might need to have. And if it's not, if it's not all cleared up, it may be wise to ask a spiritually mature friend for advice on how to approach the other person more effectively. If you do that, recognize that you don't want to get caught in gossip either, right? So you want to recognize there may be times where you can say, I need help in approaching a friend. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but here's the situation. I'm not sure I handled it well. Can you help me out? Now, if you're as connected at all as I am or 
as some of your friends are, it may be hard for you to actually mask that situation. That's why you're approaching a spiritually mature friend who might be able to handle knowing the ins and outs of who the situation is and what's going on. So you may need to include someone else, then try to go back with a little bit more information, a little bit more awareness of how you engage, and also, hopefully, with, a, with prayer support along the way. If repeated, careful attempts at a private discussion are not fruitful, and if the matter is still too serious to just overlook, you should ask one or two other people to meet with you and your opponent and to help you resolve your differences through mediation, arbitration, or accountability. So as we're gazing upward, we're looking inward, and we're moving toward people, there are opportunities for us to also let go, to forgive as we have been forgiven. So as we're letting go, that's, that's how I'm defining, defining forgiveness. To forgive is to let go of an offense, to leave it behind. The picture of forgiveness is that of releasing a debt that is owed. And Jesus gives us illustrations within his parables of that, right? You've got the, the, unright, uh, the steward who has a debt to the, to the master, and the master says, I'm going to forgive you of that debt. And then that steward goes out, and he finds somebody else who owes him just a pittance. And he grabs him by the throat and says, pay back what you owe me. And because he doesn't pay it back, he throws him in jail. And then when the master hears, what's the response of the master? I forgave that debt of yours because you asked me, and yet you didn't have the same grace to forgive this one who owed you nothing? That's how we respond often to one another. Is we don't forgive the pittance of the debt, even though the master has forgiven our great debt. And so biblical forgiveness is absorbing the cost of that sin on yourself. It's the commitment to release the debt of an offense before a holy God who is alone able to forgive sin. Forgiveness cancels a debt. And there's a misunderstanding that the commitment to forgive is kind of passive and that you simply can forget and go on with life. The forget and forgive statement, right? On the contrary, the vertical expression of forgiveness of recognizing that it's God alone who can forgive sin, that we follow what God does, actively recognizes the offense, and then commits yourself to actively release that debt. Forgiveness is not always a one-time action. Oftentimes, it's a frequent, repeated action on our part. Forgiveness is the recognition that the graciousness of God in the gospel to save is how we now are called to engage with one another. Forgiveness is both an event, I forgive you, and a process, I continue to forgive you. Forgive and forget is not biblical. 
But in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Peter asks the question, how many times should I, bro- should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? What's Peter saying? Look how wonderful I am. I'm willing to forgive him seven times. And Jesus says, no, you think too small. It's 70 times seven. I can't do that math in my head. Right? Some of you are mathematicians and that's no problem for you and you're going to start ticking it off. To me, I'm like, that's an infinite number. I don't know what that means. <laughs> 70 times seven. I forgive you is the event. I continue to forgive you is the process that it takes to continue to release that debt. Forgiveness is vertically expressed. One of the most unique features of biblical peacemaking is the pursuit of genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness reflects forgiveness. It begins with a vertical expression in the heart and then translates to the horizontal expression to others through confession and repentance. Through forgiveness, our God tears down walls that our sins have built and he opens up the way for renewed relationship with him. So therefore, as we release a person who has wronged us from the penalty of being separated from us, we reflect how our God has forgiven us. We must not hold wrongs against others, not think about those wrongs and punish them for those when we recognize that our God has forgiven us of a multitude of sins. Remember that forgiveness is a spiritual process that you cannot completely uh, fulfill on your own. You can't accomplish it on your own. So as you seek to forgive others, continually ask God for that grace to enable you to imitate his wonderful forgiveness toward you as you obey his command to forgive others. I had opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in Israel. My undergraduate degree is in Jewish studies and I got to live in Jerusalem for a year and I've been over a handful of other times. And one of the most beautiful things that I've seen is Palestinian believers and Jewish believers and Russian believers and believers from South Africa walking together. We have seen sin against each other in ways that only the grace of God can fill. No amount of war or conflict will ever bring the resolution that only Christ can bring to hard situations. Forgiveness is, is horizontal, or, or it's vertically expressed, but then it's horizontally extended as we engage with one another. Extending forgiveness to an offender is conditional on the repentance of that individual. When the other person confesses, you can fully extend forgiveness and release them from the offense and enjoy a fully restored relationship. Right? God's love is unconditional for us. Well, it is conditional. The condition was Christ. Christ was given so that God's love would be poured out on us. 
But as we engage with one another, we have to recognize that sometimes that forgiveness is not reciprocated. There are no biblical conditions for extending forgiveness to one another other than genuine repentance. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, that speaks of the godly grief that one feels when their sin is exposed and they recognize it and repent. And there's no limit to the number of times that we're commanded to forgive one another. But that reconciliation that we may face, there is condition to that, and it depends on the repentance of the other party. So some of you are sitting here thinking, I've got this relationship, and they won't talk to me. There's an aspect where you can, you can forgive them. You can release that debt, but full reconciliation may not take place because they have not repented of their sin against you or against others. And so we have to rely on the Lord that his justice will someday take care of this situation fully. Regardless of whether the offender has repented, we can always, always release that debt vertically and say, Lord, I'm giving this one to you. I can't, I can't make it work. I can't make them listen to me. I have appealed to them, and they have refused to engage. The biblical idea is to do everything that's in our ability to bring about reconciliation. Matthew 5.24 says, if your brother has something against you, go to them. And Romans 12.18, seek peace as much as it is possible. Be at peace with one another. There are going to be those times where the peace is not possible because the other party does not repent. We still have the call to forgive on a vertical level and say, Lord, I leave this in your hands. The debt is owed only to you, not to me. So what is forgiveness in action? First of all, forgiveness trusts God. Forgiveness and God's action in our forgiveness bestows the power to release the desire to personally judge and punish the person for what they've done to us. We don't avenge what we think we are owed. It's a recognition, forgiveness is a recognition that believers have been the recipient of great grace for their offenses against God, and so therefore they can express, we can express great mercy toward those who have offended us also. Repentance, confession, and extending forgiveness are all acts of worship. Let me read that again. Repentance, confession, and extending forgiveness are all acts of worship. They acknowledge our need for a savior and we rest in Christ's righteousness alone when we forgive someone else.
Confession proclaims that there is a savior, that there's a forgiver of sin, and we can live in light of that as his people. Those who confess are truly blessed, and those who extend forgiveness are reflecting the very nature of God. When we forgive, we extend four promises to the individual. I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to sit and think about all the things that you did to me that were wrong. I'm not going to bring this incident up again and use it against you. I'm not going to talk to others about this incident. And I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Again, with those four questions, as much as it is possible, or with those four statements, as much as it is possible with you, you're not going to let those things stand in the way of your personal relationship. By making and keeping these promises, you can tear down the walls that stand between you and offender, your offender. You promise not to dwell on it or brood on it or to punish them by holding the person at a distance. And this is exactly what God has done for us. And it's what he calls for us to do for one another. Third, forgiveness demonstrates obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those who have been forgiven by God understand the life-changing reality that Christ has forgiven their sins. We, as the people of God who have been transformed and redeemed to live as his children under his lordship, recognize that he has brought to us the forgiveness of sins. And he has given us the capacity and the opportunity to live with people and to offer forgiveness as we walk through conflict with them. Forgiveness shapes our relationships. Being forgiven has implications on how we relate to one another. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit as forgiven people to then forgive those who sin against us. And the visible church, the church in which we engage here, is the primary place to foster that forgiveness. Ladies, I can tell you from personal experience that forgiveness that is withheld plants seeds of bitterness. It's as if you drink poison and hope that your drinking poison will cause the other person to die. What it does is it eats at you. Failure to forgive turns the victim into a victimizer. Failure to forgive permits bitterness to creep in. Unforgiveness is so costly to our lives, to our peace, to our relationships, and to our witness. And so it is absolutely essential that we accurately assess how we're working in this with others. Number five here, forgiveness does not eliminate the consequences of sin. It doesn't eliminate the consequences of sin. We're not talking about extending peace here at all costs, right? The extension of forgiveness does not release us from the consequences of sin. If somebody has wronged you, 
It takes wisdom to to determine whether or not there are going to be consequences in this scenario. Sometimes it's best to show someone mercy. Sometimes it's best to allow the person to experience the consequences that will teach them a lesson. We can all think of the parents who found their kids uh, shoplifting. My parents owned a grocery store, so this was a regular part of our lives where parents would get home and they're like, I didn't pay for those lifesavers, right? And so then they would march the kid back and the kid would have to go to my dad and say, Mr. LeGeorge, I stole the lifesavers. I had to do that once. I stole an orange. Dad, I took an orange. I didn't ask. Right? And there were consequences for that. Well, you can't get any more oranges. Okay. Great. There was a period of time where I was not allowed to just take things out of the grocery store. There are consequences, and sometimes it's best to, to let people feel those consequences. And sometimes those consequences are going to be legal in nature. I could get off on a huge tangent here about counseling and how the church has allowed those who abuse family members to skate because maybe they've cried a few tears and said a few words that sound like they're repentant, but then the, the actual actions afterward are not dem- demonstrative of repentance. There are consequences to sin. Sometimes the implications or the consequences are outside of our own forgiveness and our own ability to control that. Sometimes there has to be legal action that is taken in the midst of someone's sin. Forgiveness does not mean peace at any cost. Romans 12, 17 to 19 again, as much as it is possible with you, You don't just sweep everything under the rug and pretend it isn't there, but you actually are continuing to remember, God has forgiven me, I release the debt against you, and I'm going to allow him, even if you don't reciprocate, I'm going to allow him to bring the justice that I so desperately want to enact myself. Right, you fighters... You fighters, you want to take control of the situation and make sure everybody hurts as much as you do in the situation. But forgiveness says, I'm going to let the Lord take care of it. Forgiveness is not about denying that things happened or being blind to people's faults or just sweeping it under the rug. It's not about being unquestioning. And this, is, this is one of those things that sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, that person is a person in power. You shouldn't question whether or not their actions are godly in nature. That that person's authority, even a spiritual authority, so what they're doing must must be fine. Don't worry about it, right? No, no, that was unjust, and we need to actually have a conversation about why it was unjust and and who it hurt and how the gospel actually is damaged by that decision. We don't have to just be unquestioning as we engage with the sin of other people. We actually are called to ask questions about that and to recognize what sin looks like 
and to not tolerate it just spilling out all over other people all the time. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the church doesn't exercise discipline. As a matter of fact, this whole process means that the church must exercise discipline because when it is no longer possible to be at peace with people, sometimes there has to be an exercise of the church actually coming forward at the end of that Matthew 18 passage. If your brother sinned against you, go to him. Or if you see your brother in sin, go to him. Have that conversation. If he doesn't listen to you, take somebody else. And that may be 40 meetings. It may be 10 meetings. It may be three meetings, and it's very apparent that you need to bring in church uh, elders or leaders into that process. The end of that process is, if they don't listen to you and the people that you take with you, then the church needs to be made aware of what that looks like. And that action by the church in discipline actually brings consequences that make that situation public and that continue to appeal to that individual to follow after the, the life that the Lord has, has brought them to or that they've become aware of. Maybe it brings them to the, to the understanding that they are not recognizing the forgiveness of God, that they are not someone who is a believer in the ultimate forgiveness that God has given, that, that God has offered. So forgiveness doesn't prevent the church from exercising discipline. Nor does forgiveness mean that the engagement of law enforcement shouldn't take place when it's proper. So we can't just sweep things under the rug. Sometimes there are consequences and sometimes there are legal consequences in a situation. Sixthly and finally, and I know this has been very sober, much more sober than the other sessions, forgiveness exercises love. The decision regarding the nature and scope of consequences must be guided by two foundational questions. What decision would most likely serve the other person? And what decision glorifies God through honoring his word. What does it look like for us to actively love someone who is in unrepentant sin that even after we've gone to them, even after forgiveness has been extended to them, they continue in the conflict or in the sin? What does it look like for us to really love them? Love is active. Love is never passive. It's always active. It's always in pursuit. As God has pursued us, like that loving shepherd. So as we think about how we engage with one another, there's a call for us to be very active in loving one another through conflict, whether it's something as simple as a flippant comment someone makes or it's something as difficult as abuse that takes place in the church we have a call to recognize that God has forgiven us and he has pursued us to bring us into right relationship with him. The gospel brings hope to us that we can engage with those who have hurt and offended us in a way that could possibly help them be restored to relationship with God or brought 
in the first place to relationship with God. So we gaze upward in conflict, recognizing that all that we do is meant to glorify God. And we move through by looking inward and by moving toward people and by letting go. The gospel is at stake. Our engagement with people that we are in conflict with shows the world who is aware of that what our relationship with our God looks like. If we say we have peace with God, but we don't have peace with each other, we make him a liar. And the truth isn't in us. Our God has brought peace to us, and he's called us to be at peace with one another as much as it is possible with you. Be at peace with all men. And it's not just about you. It's about the Spirit working through you and equipping you to do the work of what God has given us in his word. We all have that poke in the eye, right? Sammy. Some of us are the Sammy and some of us are the Sarah. It was really sweet as my friend continued to think about his daughters and uh, about their daughters and what that looked like. On the way home from church that day, after Sammy and Sarah had had the conversation of, you know, sometimes when you poke me in the eye, it hurts. Could you be a little more gentle? Right. On the way home from church later, you could tell Sammy had been thinking about it. And they heard Sammy ask her sister, would it be okay if I just touched you like this? And she demonstrated from their car seats to each other. She was thinking about it even as a little, a little girl, three years old, recognizing that that conflict had come between them and that she needed to change her action in that to be careful. What's the poke in your eye? How can you use that to demonstrate the love of Jesus to a world who so desperately needs to know peace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for the peace that you have offered to us, that you have given to us in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to extend it likewise to the world around us. We ask that as these women think through situations of conflict in their own life, Lord, that you would point out areas where there are opportunities for them to rejoice as they see you at work, as they see conflict as an opportunity to glorify you, an opportunity to live in relationship with one another in a way that honors you. And Lord, we ask that where those situations seem irreconcilable, Lord, we ask that you would give them grace and mercy and love to pursue and to accept as you would have them. Lord, give them wise counselors who can walk with them through that. And Lord, we just ask that the peace that these women find with each other would be evident to the world, that it would be so confusing to people who don't know you that they would ask questions. Lord, give these women opportunities to testify of your grace 
because of the mercy that they extend to one another. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.